The rest of you can take your copy of God's Word and make your way to Genesis 22. I know we were there last week, but there, are, there is more in there that I want to share with you this morning as we close out the year 2021. Anybody else here this morning just shocked that we're at the end of 2021, that we won't see each other till next year and it'll be 2022? And as crazy as this year has been, it sure has gone fast. But here we are, and what a good word for the Lord to leave us with as we say goodbye to 2021 and we welcome 2022. I, th I think these three words that we're going to look at this morning that show up for the first time in Scripture really need to be our focus for all of our life, but especially as we, as we plunge into a new year looking for what God has for his people, God has for us. What needs to be our focus? And I think there's no better focus than these three words. I've entitled the sermon this morning, Context is King. Um, and that's a word, that's a phrase we like to use around here uh, to keep scripture in its context. But I want to look at within the context of scripture this morning these three words that show up for the very first time in the book of genesis the historical record of humanity really in chapter number 22 now i dealt with the first one last week so i'm not gonna i'm not going to uh, spend a lot of time in that and we do have a, an outline for you um ben are there still some more up here and in the anybody not have an outline but we can get you some i want to make sure everyone's got an outline and uh we'll go through that together this morning. So last week, I talked to you about something called the law of first mention. Anybody remember that? And it's just basically this idea that when an important word or term shows up in the scriptures, the very first time it shows up lays the, <clears throat> what I call the contextual foundation for, for how that word is going to be understood from God's perspective. And then that foundation is laid and it's going to be built upon through the rest of Scripture. And most of those words obviously show up in Genesis. It's the first book of the Bible. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, we, de we dealt with this last Sunday. The first time the word love shows up is not till Genesis 22, which is a little surprising to me. Um, as I said, I thought it would have showed up when God presented Eve to Adam. Now, do you think Adam loved Eve? You think Eve loved Adam? Absolutely. But that word doesn't show up. So God's not going to put that word love in the context of a love of a man for his wife or a wife for her husband. That's not the context. We see in Scripture here that the context is the love of a father for a one and only son of promise. So let's, let's go to that Scripture. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. By the way, how many of you know that God regularly tests us? Amen? That sometimes that word is translated tempted, but God never tempts us for evil. We see that in the book of James, right? But boy, does God test us. Um, one, one, of the, one, of the, one of the statements I cringe when I hear people say it. Maybe you said it. If you have, you need to stop saying it. And it's this, God will never give you more than you can handle. That is not true. That is not true. Now, it's a misquote of Paul's admonition in Corinthians where he says, God's not going to tempt you above the ability to get out of that temptation. He's provided a way of escape, and that escape is Jesus, right? But, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't give you more than he can handle. God is constantly giving us more than we can handle. Amen, church? Yeah, and the reason he does that is to convince us of how badly we need him, right? If God didn't give us anything more than we can handle, we would never feel and embrace and understand our deep need of him as our father, amen, and as our source and provider. But here today, we see that he tests Abraham, and oh boy, does he ever. And, and, and God's testings are oftentimes beyond our ability here's how he tested him he tested him first by calling him abraham and he said here i am and it's on look at verse number two and then he said take now your son 
your only son Isaac, whom you, what church, love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Can you imagine? Well, so what does he do? This is the one I don't get. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, that's his servants, and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering. And he arose, the Bible says, and he went to the place of which God had told him. Can you imagine how long of a night that was for that father? I mean, apparently this was not an uncommon thing for Abraham and God, for God to call to Abraham and Abraham to say, here I am, let's talk. That doesn't appear to be any shocker to Abraham. And yet, this conversation takes a turn that I don't know if Abraham ever saw this one coming. You ever been there in your walk with the Lord? Why? It's like, really? Take now your son, as I said last week, literally it says there, your only Isaac. Now that word son is in italics and it's put in there so we can, it reads better in English. But literally it says your only Isaac. And offer him on one of the mountains I will tell you of as a burnt offering. Now, I was telling Wes last Sunday, that actually was not an uncommon thing amongst the people who were the neighbors of Abraham. It was very common to take your first son and offer him to these demon gods as a sacrifice to show your devotion. So it wasn't uncommon. Abraham would have been familiar with this practice. But man, what a, what a heart stopper to think about this. And this idea of love is in the context of the love of a father for a one and only son of promise. I got a little video I want to show you here that defines this word love as it's defined in the New Testament, and it's the word agape. So let's take a minute and watch this video. So if you've heard of Jesus, you probably know about one of his famous teachings called the Golden Rule. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. And this, actually, is a restatement of something else that Jesus said, that the meaning of life is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that's really beautiful, but what does he mean exactly by the word love? It's an unclear word in English, because you can love your mom and you can love pizza. And if the word love means the same thing in both of those cases, your mom's going to feel real bad. So what did Jesus mean in his language? Well, first of all, this love your neighbor phrase is a quotation from the Hebrew scriptures, where the word for love is ahava. However, the language Jesus spoke and taught in from day to day it was a cousin language of Hebrew, that is Aramaic, in which the word for love is rachma. But then, as Jesus' followers spread his teachings around the world, they translated them into Greek using the word agape. But here's what's fascinating. The earliest followers of Jesus who wrote the books of the New Testament in Greek, they didn't learn the meaning of agape by looking it up in ancient dictionaries. Rather, they looked to the teachings of Jesus and the story of his life to redefine their very concept of love. So one time, Jesus was asked about the most important command in the Jewish scriptures. And he first quoted from the ancient prayer in the Torah called the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So love for God is the most important thing. But then Jesus quickly followed up by saying another command from the Torah was also the most important, to love your neighbor as yourself. So which is the most important, loving God or loving your neighbor? Jesus' answer is yes. To ask the question means you don't get his point. For Jesus, they are two sides of the same coin. Your love for God will be expressed by your love for people and vice versa, they're inseparable. And so this makes it clear that for Jesus, agape love is not primarily a feeling for someone else that happens to you, like our phrase, I fell in love. For Jesus, love is action. It's a choice that you make to seek the well-being of people other than yourself. 
Jesus also went on to teach that genuine love for God and others means seeking people's well-being without expecting anything in return, especially from people who are in difficult situations who can't repay you even if they wanted to. According to Jesus, this kind of generous love reflects the very heartbeat of God. And he took this even further. Jesus said that the ultimate standard of authentic love is how well you treat the person that you can't stand. Or in his words, you shall love your enemy and do good to them, expecting nothing in return. For Jesus, this kind of enemy-embracing love imitates the very character of God himself. Now, we wouldn't be talking about Jesus still today if he had only said things like love your enemy. This is how he actually lived. Jesus was constantly helping and serving the people around him in very practical and tangible ways. And he consistently moved towards poor and hurting people who couldn't benefit him in return. He showed love for the forgotten ones, the people who usually fall through the cracks. And when Jesus eventually marched into Jerusalem, he made himself an enemy of the leaders of his people by accusing them of hypocrisy and corruption. But then instead of attacking his enemies to overthrow them, he allowed them to kill him. Jesus died for the selfishness and corruption of his enemies because he loved them. After Easter morning, Jesus and then his followers claimed that it was the power of God's love for the world that was revealed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. As the Apostle Paul put it, God demonstrated his own agape for us in this. While we were still sinners, the Messiah died for us. Or in the words of the Apostle John, God's own agape was revealed when he sent his one and only son into the world so that through him we could have life. And for John, then, this leads naturally to the conclusion, beloved ones, if that's how God has loved us, then we ought to show love for one another. So Christian faith involves trusting that at the center of the universe is a being overflowing with love for his world, which means that the purpose of human existence is to receive this love that has come to us in Jesus and then to give it back out to others, creating an ecosystem of others-focused, self-giving love. And that's the New Testament meaning of agape love. Can you see how the contextual idea of the love of a father for a one and only son through progressive revelation form something that is called agape love where your love is for the well-being of other people at great cost to yourself Do you see that natural progression and it's laid down with this contextual foundation of the love of a father for a one and only son you cannot get away from that and obviously that is a nod to what is coming. Even this whole acting out of what's going to happen on this mountain is a foreshadowing of what actually would happen on that mountain some centuries later. So that's the context. The foundational context for the term love is the love of a father for a one and only unique son. But that brings us to the next word. That leads us to this word that shows up for the first time in verse number five so he's lifted up his eyes he sees the place and god says that's it that's where it's going to happen and I, I want you to pull back from that text we can look at that clinically we can look at that with the bible glasses on as i like to say but if you take those bible glasses off what what's going through abraham's mind it's been three days journey first of all those had to have been miserable days what's he thinking when he looks up and God says, that's it. That's the place. What's going through his heart? This, I, I, I just, as a father, I can hardly put myself in his place. But look at verse number five. There it is. And Abraham is determined to do what God told him to do. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder. And what's that word, church? And worship. But notice this. And we will come back to you. That's the first time the word worship shows up. Now would you, would you not think in all the preceding chapters of Genesis and the early accounts of early humanity that worship would show up somewhere? Do you think worship happened before Genesis 22? Of course it did. We're going to see that because Isaac was super familiar with what worship looked like. And he had a question about it because he knew something was missing. How did he know that? Because he and dad had done this before. Apparently, 
regularly. Worship, I think worship happened early on. We, do we not see it with Cain and Abel? We see man-centered worship and God-centered worship. And God only accepted one of those. So it's not like worship was a foreign concept. But the word itself doesn't show up until Genesis 22 and verse 5. And it lays a contextual foundation that's vital, vital for us to understand today. That word means literally to bow before in homage or worship of a superior. Um, Andy and Ben should know this word. We, we, we dealt with it a lot in our Latin is laudo, laudere. And that means to praise or to worship. Remember that, Ben? Yeah. That, that, that's part of our Latin studies. Uh, and it, we have an English word from that, which is laud. Right? I bet you haven't used the word laud in a sentence this week, have you? <laughs> have you not lauded your children for picking up the wrapping paper from Christmas morning? To laud means to praise. Right? Um, and it comes right from that Latin word, laudo which means to praise. Um, this idea of bowing down. We don't, we don't do that anymore, do we? we don't. When's the last time you bowed? What, what, do we do, what do we say in church? Bow your head in prayer. But is that how they bowed in worship? No, they, when you came before a king, what did, what did you do? You literally got on your knees... Or sometimes even lay on the floor. You got on your knees and you put your head on the ground in front of them. What, did that, what does that do? Just that posture. It's submission. What did I hear back here? That's my, that's my thought. And that literally is what it meant. You are literally, what are you exposing when you're on your knees? Yeah, and your, your, your forehead is literally touching the ground. What are you exposing? You're exposing the back of your neck, which, by the way, is the quickest way to kill somebody. What you're saying in that posture is, I am so submitted to you that my life is yours, and literally I'm going to put it in your hands. Here's the back of my neck. Here's the quickest way to take me out. And it, because I belong to you, you got the right to do that. I'm yours. I'll die for you, and I'll live for you. So that's this idea of worship is to make yourself vulnerable. And what does he tell them? He says, the boy and I, the lad and I, we're going to go yonder. We're going to go up here and we're going to do what? We're going to worship. We're going to make ourselves vulnerable before this God who owns us. And boy, wasn't he? He wasn't just going to make himself vulnerable. He's going to make his son vulnerable. It's an incredible, incredible story. C.S. Lewis says this, he says, In the process of being worshipped, God communicates his presence to men. I want you to ponder that for a second. God communicates his manifest presence only when he's being worshipped. When we are being vulnerable, when we are understanding the posture that God, you own me, and you own all that, I, that you have given me, including these children. God shows up when that happens. David Jeremiah put it this way. If you don't worship, you'll never experience God. Isn't that true? If you don't worship, you'll never experience God. And isn't that true? And here's the context for worship. I don't even need a sentence. It's one word. And remember, the law of first mention. Here's how God lays down this idea of worship. It's in the context of sacrifice. Because what's getting ready to happen on that mountain? God's getting, yeah, Abraham's getting ready to literally sacrifice this son of promise. And I, I just can't, I just can't wrap my mind around this. I've tried. I just can't, I can't get to the space where it works in my 21st century brain. Anybody with, can y'all with me on that? Uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's too heavy. 
So look at this text, and let's, let's just take a look and see how, how strange this really is and offensive it is to our ears. He says, the light and I will go yonder and worship. But notice this last part. What does he say? And we will come back to you. Was Abraham thinking he was going to chicken out up there and not do it? No. Nope, we're going to see that in a second. He was fully committed. But he said, we're coming back. Now, now that can mean a lot of things. I think you could probably read too much into it and probably read not enough into it. All right, so it can mean several things. It could mean that I'm going to come back with what is left of my son. Right? What else could it mean? Yeah, it, some have said that this is, this is Abraham's understanding that God was going to, if he did what he did, God was going to have to resurrect this young man. Why would Abraham believe that? That's exactly right. This, young, this guy was the son through which God said, I'm going to bless the whole world, and your descendants through, through Isaac are going to be more than the sand on the seashore and more than the stars in the heaven. Right? And yet, then God says, I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. So Abraham, as a man of faith, says, hey, that's God's problem, how that's going to work, but it's got to be him. But he's still fully committed. That is absolutely, to me, that's absolutely stunning. Look at the next verse. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. And don't miss this. Look what it says. Look what he does with it. And he laid it on Isaac, his son. That sound familiar to anybody? Jesus carried his cross. And again... I can't imagine what's going through old Abraham's mind as he lays this wood knowing what he's fixing to do with it. It gets worse. Look at the next one. And he, Abraham, what did he take in his hand? Two things. A fire and a pot probably. And, and a knife. Fire to light the wood. What, what's the knife for? To kill his son. And, and Abraham says, we're going yonder to what? Worship. Worship means sacrifice. What, is it, what did it cost you and I to come here today? What did it cost us to, to sing? Yet worship is always in the context of sacrifice. It's expensive. And I cannot imagine his father's heart walking up there. And this little phrase, Isaac's got the wood on his back, crazy thought, and here's Abraham with the pot of fire, the coals, in one hand and a knife in the other. I'm dying as I'm walking up that. I, I, as a, I just, how? How does he do that? And that little phrase, and the two of them went on together. You think Abraham was lost in his thoughts about what was coming? I'd be. And then the, the, the silence is interrupted by Isaac. Verse 7. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father. Hey, Dad. And look at Abraham's response. He said, My son. Or, or he said, here, here I am, my son. I'm right here. Then he said, Then Isaac says, Look. The fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? As if it wasn't hard enough. This also tells me that Isaac had done this before with dad. So, so Abraham had led his son in the worship of Jehovah by killing a lamb and burning it before God. Right? This was not... Isaac said, hey, some, hey Dad, we've done this so much. I know what we're doing, but something, something big is missing. And that lamb cost Abraham something, didn't it? I mean, he had to take that from, 
from his flock. And in those days, you didn't just go down to uh, the First National Bank of Canaan and put your money in it. Your money was all wrapped up in your herds, the things of your flocks. So literally, to, to, to sacrifice and worship to Jehovah cost you something financially. He had to take, and you couldn't take the, the worst lamb you had. You had to take the best. So it literally cost you the feast. And boy, if I could just let that lamb with, live, that little male, imagine how many great lambs I could get out of him. And, and, and yet Abraham says, nope. God's worth the best that we got. So, so Isaac's familiar with this. He says, look, here's a, here's a fire. I got the wood on my back, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Whew. I don't even know how there is a verse 8. I fear to say that if, if, if that was me, we would stop in the trail, turn around, head back down the hill. And there would be no verse 8. But thank God, Abraham's different. Verse 8, and then Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Wow. I like the old King James. Uh, this one says God will provide for himself the lamb. The old King James says God will provide himself a lamb. Literally, he is going to provide the lamb, and it's going to be his own self, his own son. But can you imagine the rest of that walk? Apparently, it's in silence. I don't know how Abraham does it. And, and Isaac's not stupid. And I know he's taking his dad at his word. All right, there's, God's going to have to... God's got it up. That lamb's up there somewhere for us. Because as much as Isaac might not understand, he trusts his father. You see that son to father? I'm going to show you that more in a second. But listen to me. Don't miss it. As much as Isaac trusts Abraham, Abraham trusts Jehovah. And it's wrapped up in this word. Do you see how complex this word called worship really is? It's so expensive cost something and yet there's there's trust there's faith all over it and behind all of that is love why does Isaac trust Abraham so much because he's convinced that his father loves him you see it why why does Abraham so trust Jehovah in all of this because he's convinced that he loves God and that God loves him love is the foundation of worship but, but worship costs something. And then we come to the next verse. Verse 9. Then they came to the place which God had told them. I think it was a very specific place. I think it was like Abraham's walking. All of a sudden God says, this is it. Stop. Right here. And Abraham built an altar. So he gathers some large stones. And God was real funny about these types of altars. He didn't want it made of cut stone. Not something that you cut out of a quarry. Had to be uncut. So, so he finds these stones. And these altars were pretty good size. Now think about it. What's going to happen? You know that he's going to lay Isaac on his altar. How big is this altar? Like it's not a little pile of rocks. Where it's significant. What's going through his mind as he's picking up these stones and building this thing? And notice, he's the one who does it. It's not Isaac. The father's preparing and laying the foundation for what's about to happen. Don't miss the symbolism there. So he builds this altar. And when he gets done, and it's huge, it's probably as long as his communion table and at least twice as wide, maybe three times. We're talking about a you know, four foot by four, maybe five foot by five foot pile of large boulders and then he stacks all the wood on it he puts it in such an order so that it will light and there'll be air to come underneath it and it will burn hot and long right and he lays all that wood on the altar now look at as it continues verse number 10 or, or st we're still on nine look at this and he bound isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. 
Now, we got to stop right here. Abraham's up there. First of all, he's already up there in years when, he, when, when Isaac's conceived. He's already old. Now he's even older because Isaac's a young man. Probably that word lad there is used. He's probably between the ages of 15 and 20. Now, you, you, we'll just take Sam, 16 years old. Or even Ben over here at, what are you, 13, Ben? 13, he's as big as, they're, they're, they're as big as me. Sam's taller, Ben's bigger. Think of an old man, probably 100 years old or more, and this young, strapping young man. You think if Isaac wasn't wanting to get up there that he could not have overpowered his father? You better believe it. There's as much faith in this history in Isaac as there is in Abraham. That blows, this whole thing just blows my mind. But there he is. He lets his father bind him, tie him up, and lay him on this wood, on this altar. How, how costly is worship? That's what you have to ask yourself as you read these words. What's going through Isaac's mind? God will provide himself a lamb? And that's me? I, I, thought, I thought you told me that I was the son of promise. And it's going to end like this? You ever been in those chapters in your life that don't make sense? Have you ever said in your own mind, really God, this, really? This is it? And here they are. And Abraham's going through with it, man. Look at the next verse. I mean, he is going to do it. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. You've got to be kidding now, we always think of this. But we know how they did it, at least later on. It wasn't like this. It was across the neck so that, that blood could flow. However you picture that, no good. He can ready to do it. He takes out the knife, and he is ready to take his son's life. But then we see a shift in the story. But... The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, calls him twice. That's important. He definitely wants to get Abraham's attention. And Abraham knows this voice. And so he said, here I am. Well, I don't know if there's relief or confusion. I imagine as Abraham has to work this up, right? All right, here we go. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Takes the knife out. Get just as he's about to do it. The angel calls his name twice and stops him. And he says, but the angel of the Lord calls him twice. Then look at verse 11, or verse 12. And he said, the angel of the Lord says, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Now, there's a problem with that. That tells us that, is that saying that God, there's something God didn't know? No, that's not what that means. It's not that God didn't know it. It was a test. Did God know how Abraham was going to do in that test? You better believe it. The whole thing is a picture of what's coming. God knew. I don't know. I think Abraham knew. He was fixing to do it. So then who's that really for? I think that's for you and I. To know that there was a guy that we call Father Abraham who loved God more than God's greatest gift to him, which was his son. Wow. Now look, there still has to be a sacrifice. We come up here to worship. Worship means sacrifice. That's the context. What are we going to do? Look at verse 13. Then Abraham lifted his eyes... And look, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Ram is a male, sheep or goat. And he's caught in a pricker bush. His horns are caught in a pricker bush. Now how in the world, if, 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 that, if that ram is caught in a thicket, how is it that Abraham never hears that? 
And it's right behind him. I think it's because Abraham was so intent on what he's getting ready to do. He was so focused on obeying God. He says, stop. Don't do it. And then Abraham kind of gets out of the moment for a second. He lifts his eyes. He turns around and looks. And there's this ram. And he's caught by his horns in a, in a, in a thorn bush. Don't miss it. By the way, the horns are always, a, in the Bible, always a, a, a picture of strength and authority and power. The strength of that ram and the power of that ram was in his horns. And yet, what is he caught by? Yeah, in the thorns, right? Jesus had all power. And yet, what did he wear to that cross? A crown of thorns. Don't miss that significance. Now look at the next verse, 14. Or the rest of 13. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering. Notice this word, instead. That means in the stead of or in place of his son. That was all a picture. Because one day this drama is going to be reenacted. And you're going to hear the son say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no ram caught in a thicket for Jesus. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Right? Do we see that? Wow. How vulnerable in worship does Abraham make himself before God? How vulnerable does he make his son in worship? I've often said God's greatest blessings make the best idols. I have seen people literally walk away from God for the sake of their children. And not just their babies. Because it's nice when they're little. You can correct them and they respond. But then they get older and leave. And end up doing stupid things. As an affront to God's revealed word. And all of a sudden we change our theology because of our love for our children. Which is greater than our love for God. I have seen that so many times. And I fear that in my own life. And I had a son who going in the wrong direction. I still have some. And I tell you what, whenever I would deal with that son who was not in my home anymore, I would remind him of his need for Christ and his need to obey the gospel and obey God. And, he, and that's why he didn't call me very much. You know why? He knew what he was going to hear. And I did that even though it broke my own heart sometimes to say that to him because I knew it was going to cause a rift in our relationship. I did that because I had to do that for me so that I could be reminded that God was more important than the kid that he gave me. And I couldn't fudge on God's law because my son was disobeying it. And I needed to love God enough and love that young man enough to give him the hard truth that he did not want to hear. And now the curtain closes on this powerful contextual foundation for what worship means. And we come to the final word that shows up for the first time in God's word. And it's almost unbelievable. <laughs> it shows up in verse 18. Let me start again in verse 15 now. And I don't know what order I've got that. We'll come back to that video if it's uh, later. Verse 15 says this. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. So it's all over. He's offered the ram. Oh, by the way, how happy were both of them? Yeah. Right? You think your kids were happy yesterday morning? Nothing, right? Nothing compared to how happy Abraham and Isaac must have been to snatch that ram out of that thorns and offer him up as a burnt offering. Amen, Wes? Well, you'd have been doing that happy day. That poor ram, he, he, that was his last day. Wow, how you've never been more happy. Boy, you, I bet you Abraham and Isaac never worshiped like that before or since. Amen? Woo! Thank you, Lord. Wow, you ever been through that and God has provided the way out in the wilderness and it looked like you were done for? And then here's this beautiful answer. You know what that feels like. And yet God's not done. 
It's all over. I think the I think they were the smoke was still rising. And God's got one more thing to say to him. And here's here's what he says. This is this is just amazing. Look what he says. He says, um, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Look at this, verse 17. Blessing, I will bless you. And multiply, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. Look at verse 18. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Look at this. Look at this. Because you have, what's that word? Obeyed my voice. You know, it's the first time the word obedience or obey shows up. I'm thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Nah. Did, 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 did Cain obey God? And, and, or not Cain. Did Abel obey God? No, Cain obeys somebody else. Did Abel obey God and bring in the, 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 the prescribed sacrifice? Yeah. There's a lot of obedience before Genesis 22. But the contextual foundation of this word obey is going to be laid right alongside a worship, costly worship, that is a result of this great love, not only for the sacrifice, but for God himself. And as all preachers of the gospel do, we like to look up the meaning of words, right? In the original language. We're going to look at a video. This blew me away. When I looked up this word, I said, you've got to be kidding me. This cannot be the Hebrew word. But it was. And it's a word some of you are familiar with. The word for obey is the Hebrew word shema. And I found this video is so good in laying in it just a couple minutes long. But watch this and see if it doesn't make sense. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Now, the first word of the Shema is hear or listen, which in Hebrew is pronounced Shema. That's where the prayer gets its name. Now, Shema is a really common word in the Hebrew Bible, and it's obvious why. Hearing is a very universal activity. It's usually connected with the ear, as in Proverbs chapter 20, ears that Shema and eyes that see, the Lord has made them both. Now, that seems basic enough, but if you look at the other ways that Hebrew authors can use the word Shema, they use it to mean more than just let sound waves enter your ear. In Hebrew, Shema can also mean pay attention to or focus on. So when Leah, who wasn't loved by her husband Jacob, she has a son and she names him Simon, or in Hebrew, Shimon, because she says, the Lord has Shamad, that I am unloved. So Shema means to hear and to pay attention to and even more. It can also mean responding to what you hear. This is why so many of the cries for help in the book of Psalms begin with a call that God listen. Psalm 27 verse 7, Shema my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful, answer me. So asking God to Shema is at the same time asking God to act, to do something. It's similar to when God asks people to listen. Like when the people of Israel come to Mount Sinai, God says, if you shema me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Now there's a couple interesting things about this verse in Exodus. In Hebrew, the word shema is repeated twice in this sentence to give it emphasis. If you shema shema, meaning listen closely. But also notice that from God's point of view, listening is basically the same as keeping the covenant. So when God asks the people to Shema, what he means is that they listen and obey. And that's the last fascinating thing about Shema. In ancient Hebrew, there is no separate word for obey, meaning to carry out the wishes of someone who knows better than you or is in authority over you. So in the Bible, if you want to say, I will listen and do what you say, you use the single word Shema. In Hebrew, listening and doing are two sides of the same coin. This is why later in Israel's history, when the people were breaking their covenant promises to God, the Hebrew prophets would say things like, they have ears, but they're not listening. 
The Israelites, of course, could hear just fine, but they weren't actually listening or else they would act differently. And so in the end, listening in the Bible is about giving respect to the one speaking to you and doing what they say. Real listening takes effort and action, and that's the Hebrew word Shema. Isn't that something? Do you see it? That's the word for obey. So here's the context of this word, obey. It is literally to listen and act accordingly. And I love what's said in there. There's no idea in the Hebrew context of listening and not doing what is said. Or of obedience without listening. To, to hear is to obey. And what do we teach our children? We have a little saying in our house. I hear Elizabeth say it on occasion. And, and, and we, it is this. I obey what? Right? Oh, wait, he's asleep. <laughs> uh, if, I, if he wasn't asleep, he would say, I obey right away. That's why when you're training up your children, when you call, let's like with Abraham here, when you call your child, you should, you should train them to audibly respond to you. So when I call one of my, or Elizabeth calls one of the kids, and sometimes even at 11 years old, we have to repractice this. Emma, she should say, what, Emma? Yes, sir, or yes, dad. Either one. Yes, sir, yes, dad. Why? I want a verbal response that you're hearing me, that you shema. Because what I'm about to tell you, I'm going to require you to what? To do. Obey. Right? So it's the call and it's the response. So it's hearing and obeying and notice don't miss it because Abraham obeyed heard and did the most insane hardest thing he could ever do what he was going to be blessed and everyone attached to him was going to be blessed obedience brings blessing hearing and obeying don't ever separate the two that's what the word means. And this really breaks down nicely into a little thought. Is that we love, we laud, and we listen. Love is demonstrated, listen to this now, love is demonstrated by worship. Which is defined by an obedience that doesn't count the cost. We love, laud, and listen. Love is demonstrated by worship, which is defined by an obedience that doesn't count the cost. So, if we take the biblical contextual definitions of love, worship, and obedience, and hold up our practice to their standards, the question remains, how you doing? You love God? Do you really love God? If you do, it's going to be demonstrated by your worship. And what that means is sacrifice. What did you, and, and, and that sacrifice, that worship is defined by your obedience, your shema, your hearing and doing. What did Jesus say? If you love me, what? Keep my commandments. Do what I say. Right? How are you doing? Doing what he said. How are we doing? St. Augustine put it this way. You never go away from us, yet we have difficulty in returning to you. Come, Lord, stir us up and call us back. Kindle and seize us. Be our fire and our sweetness. Let us love and let us run. Amen? Love, laud, and listen. How we doing? How are you doing? What a watchword for the new year. Love, worship, and obey. Putting God first because he is worthy. Amen? I want you to stand with me and we're going to sing a song together as we close this morning. An old hymn. Not a hymn. Chorus. Super simple, but it's got all these three components in it. It's got love, worship, and the 
sense of sacrifice. It's got this idea of hearing. God hearing us as we have heard and listened to him. And I wonder if we can sing this with integrity this morning. If this is real. And if it's not, maybe we shouldn't sing, but maybe we should just respond. And it goes like this. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my king, in what you hear, Shema. And may it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Father, I pray that you would accept the praise of our lips today. And may our actions be not far behind. And as Augustine said, may we run as we love you. I pray that you would be our fire and you would be our sweetness. That you would kindle and seize us. That you would stir us up and call us back to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. Love. Worship and obey what a word as we say goodbye to one year and welcome the next may those be the words that we embrace may we endeavor to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind and strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. may that love be demonstrated in a sacrificial worship may we stop counting the cost of what we're giving and count the cost of what's been given to us. And may that flesh itself out in the trenches of every day in obedience. Doing and hearing and obeying. And may we be like those, the concept of that Hebrew word, that there's no difference or two sides of the same coin. That if when we hear, we will obey. And when God calls, we say, Yes, Dad, I'm listening. What do you want me to do? With the idea that there is no choice in the matter. We just do it. Amen. Amen. Let's take it and run with it. Would you sing with me that great anthem of praise this morning? Praise God from...